You can take your Bibles and turn them to the Gospel of John, chapter 17. John 17. <clears throat> and I want to thank those who, uh, who came out this morning for our, our pre-service prayer time. Um, that was a great time, and it really helped me to get my heart right and uh, to help me to get focused and leaning on and depending on God. And uh, I trust that the prayers of God's people went up this morning, and it's helping you to worship uh, better as well. That's what that time is for. And I'm going to be gone for the next three Sundays, and, and I hope that, that that prayer time will continue even when I'm not here. Sometimes when the pastor's not at something, it kind of you know, disintegrates. Uh, that doesn't need to happen. You're not dependent on me. You're dependent on God, and that's what the pre-service prayer time is for, is to be uh, dependent on God. So uh, I hope that will uh, continue on throughout this summer. John chapter 17. So when you are in a crisis, and when you're going through extreme difficulty, uh, when you're walking through a, a time of intense trial, how do you typically respond? Where do you turn to for comfort? Do you get angry? Do you get afraid? Try to jump in and manipulate and control everything? Crisis have a tendency to reveal the kind of person that you really are. Very often, you don't really get to know and understand a person, uh, understand who they are, understand what their character is like, what their priorities really are, until you see them actually go through a crisis, through a time of great challenge and difficulty. That's true for you. That was also true for Jesus. Because as we begin John chapter 17, we are now on the very doorstep of the most intense crisis, the most intense time of trial and tribulation that Jesus will ever go through and he is not ignorant of what is coming. He's been talking about what's coming for quite a while now. He will be betrayed by one of his own disciples. Another will deny him. All will abandon him. He'll, he will be taken, arrested, beaten, mocked, and at the end of it all, hung on a cross to be executed like a criminal. And it is in this time of great crisis that we see the essence of who Jesus is what Jesus is all about, what His priorities really are. This incredible prayer in chapter 17, this is, this, is a, this is a prayer of Christ to the Father. This is what this whole chapter is. A lot of people call it the high priestly prayer. There's a lot of depth in this particular chapter. I, I heard uh, recently that Martin Luther's friend, Philip Melanchthon, he preached on the high priestly prayer of, of Jesus, and he did it in 41 sermons a 41-part sermon series on John chapter 17. That's not going to happen here. But I will give you a few sermons on John chapter 17, and we're going to hit some of the the, the high points, and I hope it will be of help to you. If you are new to Christianity, and you want to discover more about Jesus, or if you've known Jesus for a long time, and you want to get to know Him better, consider reading John chapter 17 every day this week. I think it would be an incredible project for you to do. And see what you think about Jesus at the end of the week. And see how it changes your heart at the end of the week. Read it very slowly, very carefully. Just live and swim in this chapter, and you will be amazed at what you see. John, uh, John Calvin uh, said that in this prayer, we see the soul of Jesus. I think he's right. 
And this morning, I want us to spend time just looking at the first five verses of Jesus' prayer. And as we consider the priorities of Jesus in this prayer, I hope it's going to challenge us to consider and reconsider our priorities, what matters most in our lives. So, let's dive into this together. Please stand with me, and let's read now the bearing of Jesus' soul so that we may see Him more clearly and love Him more dearly, so that we may see and savor Christ. John chapter 17, starting at verse 1. Word of God says, When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son, that the Son may glorify You, since You have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom You have given Him. And this is eternal life, that they know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom You have sent. I glorified You on earth, having accomplished the work that You gave me to do, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Let's pray. Father, there is an ocean depth of truth in these five verses. I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, open our eyes so that we may see and behold wonderful things in your word this morning for the glory of Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. So this is, a, this is a cross-centered prayer. The word cross is not mentioned explicitly, but when you dig deeper into these verses, it becomes evident that the cross is at the center of everything he's praying about. It was the center of his life and mission, and so it should be at the center of our life and our mission. And Jesus teaches us at least three things about the cross in these first five verses. He teaches us something about its priority in His prayer. And the first thing that Jesus teaches us is that the cross is the hour for which He had come, the hour for which He had come. Look with me at verse 1. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Now, what does the hour mean? Well, we actually get some help from the author himself, and when you're interpreting Scripture, it's very helpful as you're going through that book of the Bible to look for words that repeat themselves and, and to see how they are used, and that, that, that gives you some hermeneutical help as you're trying to interpret Scripture. The word hour has come up several times already in the Gospel of John. So, for example, Uh, In John chapter 2, verse 4, Jesus says to His mother, to Mary, my hour has not yet come. Or turn back with me a few pages to John chapter 7, where we see the phrase used again, and we get a hint about what this hour is all about. Uh, In John chapter 7, we see that Jesus' opponents, Jesus' enemies, want to seize Jesus. But look what it says in verse 30. This is John chapter 7, verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest Him… But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Or turn over a chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 20. It says, These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So, Jesus' hour 
through most of John's gospel, has not yet come. We, we we're told that over and over again. And this hour is linked to Jesus being seized and arrested. Now turn to chapter 12. So we've been reading through John, and we see it over and over again. His hour's not yet come. His hour's not yet come. And now we come to John chapter 12, and look at verse 23. Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So now the hour is upon us. And we know from chapter 7 and 8 that that hour is not only associated with his enemies arresting him, but it's also associated with his glorification. Turn with me to chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Okay, so that's another way of saying Jesus is going to die, departing and going to the Father. And then later in that chapter… Judas, the traitor, leaves the upper room to turn Jesus over to his enemies, and look at what it says right after Judas leaves. This is in verse 31 of John 13. When he, Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. So, the departure of Judas triggers this comment from Jesus because the departure of Judas sets in motion the things that must happen for Jesus to be seized, arrested, killed, and glorified. And so, you have this interesting progression of this concept of the hour. We start with, my hour has not yet come. We move to, my hour has come. And then we move to, now the Son of Man is glorified. It's another way of saying, now my hour is here. So, this hour encompasses the betrayal of Jesus, the arrest, the murder, and the glorification. It's all under the larger category of Jesus' hour. And so, by the time you get to chapter 17, this is already in motion. It's going to happen. And Jesus opens His prayer with those words, Father, the hour has come. So, the hour is all about the cross. And if you're reading through the Gospel of John, it should be clear at this point that the cross was the primary reason that Jesus came into the world. I hope that's clear to you, because it's not clear to everyone. You ask people, why did Jesus come into the world? And you'll get all kinds of answers. Uh, Jesus came into the world to teach us how to live, uh, to be a moral example. Or Jesus came into the world to alleviate the suffering of the poor and the needy. And while Jesus certainly did do those things and more, that's not the primary reason for Jesus' incarnation. Jesus had one overarching mission in His coming to earth, and He had plenty of opportunities to veer from that path. Indeed, He was tempted to veer from that path. In Matthew chapter 4, the devil tempts Jesus, and it's very interesting, says that the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And the devil says to Jesus, all of these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Now, this is a particular temptation that many of us struggle to figure out, get our heads around that. What does that mean? Satan shows Jesus the kingdoms of the world. He he offers these kingdoms to Jesus. How is that a temptation? Because the Bible promises everywhere that the inheritance of the Messiah is the universe. God the Father will deliver to Jesus the kingdoms of the world along with the entire cosmos. So, the question is, 
where's the temptation in that? He's going to get the kingdoms anyway, right? But the pathway to get the kingdom, to get the kingdoms of the world, the pathway looks different depending on if you follow Satan's path or if you follow God's path. If Jesus follows God, He will get the kingdoms of the world. But the question is, where does the path to kingdom glory lead to? Where does it lead through? The path to kingdom glory will first take Jesus to the cross. Suffering now, glory later. And so Satan's temptation in Matthew chapter 4 is not to worship Satan. What's appealing about that? And it's not simply getting kingdom glory. That's rightfully his, and he's going to get it anyway. The temptation is to take the shortcut to get what is rightfully his now by avoiding the cross. So God's way, suffering now, glory later, Satan's way is, why suffer at all? Take it all now. That's the temptation. But Jesus doesn't fall for it. He resists the devil, and he's determined to fulfill his mission, and his mission is to die. So the cross was not a tragic accident. The cross is not a mistake. Some have suggested that. Some scholars have actually suggested that Jesus never intended to wind up on the cross. They instead teach that things got out of hand, things got out of control, things didn't go according to plan, and Jesus ends up executed. How did I get here? That's how some people view it. Our Muslim neighbors go as far to say that Jesus would, that, that God would never let Jesus, an innocent man, die on the cross. And, that, and many of them will say, uh, that well, all Muslims say that Jesus wasn't actually crucified, but that people thought that they were crucifying Jesus. It, it, it appeared to people that they were crucifying Jesus, but that God actually rescued Jesus, kind of a holy fake-out on the part of God. In fact, some suggest, some Muslims suggest that somebody else was crucified and, and, and that God made that person to look like Jesus. Indeed, some suggest that the man was actually Judas Iscariot, the betrayer. So Judas dies to save Jesus. Can you think of anything more satanically twisted than that? I once read an article from a Muslim imam saying that if Jesus was crucified, it would prove the point of Jesus' enemies that the curse of God was on Jesus, and that's why Jesus was afraid of the cross and avoided it. But the Scriptures paint a different picture from all of these false views of the cross. The crucifixion of Jesus was not a situation where Jesus' enemies got the best of Him, and it was not a situation where things got out of control. Instead, the Bible clearly tells us that the grand architect behind the cross is not Satan. It's not evil men, but it's God. In fact, Acts 2.23 says that Jesus was delivered over to wicked men by the predetermined plan, not of the devil, but of God. Yes, Jesus' enemies chose of their own free volition to kill Jesus, but it was God who sovereignly ordained and planned this from before the foundation of the world. And contrary to what that Muslim imam was saying, Jesus did not avoid the cross he actually embraced it. Indeed, Jesus was unrelenting in his march towards the cross. I like how the Gospel of Luke puts it. 
Luke chapter 9, verse 51, says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. That kind of language speaks of Jesus, a one-track mind, a steadfast determination to die. He knew Jerusalem would be the place where his hour would finally come, and nothing would deter him from that mission. People around Jesus are thinking, this guy has a death wish. I don't get it. But Jesus did not come to preserve his life. He came to give it away. Everything in Jesus' life and ministry was driving him towards the cross, driving him towards this very hour. This is the reason that he came. And why is that? Because, and this is my second point, cross is the means by which Jesus would be glorified. The cross is the means by which Jesus, by which God, would be glorified. Glory keeps coming up over and over again throughout Jesus' prayer here in John 17. It comes up three times in the first five verses. Look at verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Look at verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Or look at verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Let's think about that word glory. What does that mean? Glory is one of those uh, Christian lingo words that we throw around, right? We say it a lot, but we're not actually sure what it means or how we define it. The, the verb to glorify can mean to praise, to honor, and certainly how the word is used here in John 17 carries some of that weight. Don Carson suggests that the, word, that the use of the word glory, as used in verse 5 in particular, means to clothe in splendor. Uh, Carson goes on to say that Jesus' petition asks the Father to reverse the self-emptying entailed in Jesus' incarnation and to restore Him to the splendor that He shared with the Father before the world began. I think that's true. There's a glory, there's a splendor about Jesus that was veiled in the incarnation. The disciples, they saw glimpses of it, they saw hints of it, but it was not manifested in its fullness during His earthly ministry. And by the way, and this is an aside, but it's an important aside worth highlighting, these verses are verses that demonstrate both Jesus' pre-incarnate existence and His deity. And it also points to the multiplicity of persons in the Godhead, one God three persons. Jesus did not begin His existence in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. That's where He began His human existence. But here Jesus says He shared in God's glory before the beginning of creation. That's a long time before Bethlehem. But Jesus' petition here not only speaks to His pre-existence, but to His deity. He says, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So, there was a glory that Jesus shared with the Father in eternity past. Jesus, think about this, this is huge. Jesus shared glory with the same God who says in Isaiah 42, I am the Lord, I will not share my glory with anyone else. 
And so if God doesn't share His glory with anyone else, and yet God and Jesus share the same glory, it must mean that Jesus is God. If you are witnessing to Jehovah's Witnesses who do not believe in the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, you may want to write down Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8. This God who is so jealous for His own glory that He won't share it with anyone else, but He shares it with Jesus. What does that tell you about Christ? Jesus is God. As a matter of fact, this has been the very drumbeat throughout the whole Gospel of John from the very first chapter of John, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You have also in chapter 8, Jesus taking on the divine name of God and applying it to Himself when He says, before Abraham was, I am. That name, I am, speaks to both eternality and deity. He is an eternal being, and only God is eternal. And so we find more support for the doctrine of the Trinity, where we have, again, one God who exists as three different persons. And Jesus, who is God the Son, in this prayer, is anticipating the enjoyment of the unveiling of that glory when He returns to heaven in the fullness of His Father's presence. However, in the Gospel of John, glory and glorification are not limited to Jesus' exaltation into heaven, but it also necessarily includes crucifixion. Jesus' cross and Jesus' glory are intertwined in the Gospel of John, and you cannot separate them. Verse 1 reminds us of this as we again see Jesus' hour and Jesus' glory intertwined. Just as the pathway to Jesus' inheritance of the kingdoms of the world goes through the cross, so the cross also is the pathway for Jesus to achieve that pre-incarnate glory that He shared with the Father before the world existed. The fullness of Jesus' glory will be put on display as a consequence of His work on the cross. This is seen, for example, in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2 describes the incarnation the humiliation, and the crucifixion of Christ. And what is the consequence of all of those things? Well, the consequence is, Philippians 2, up there, up top on the screen, therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. Because Jesus did that, Jesus will get glory. His embrace of the humiliation will result in His glorious exaltation. But there's more. Because the cross is not simply the path to glory. The cross is glory. And this is something that most of the Jews in Jesus' day could not get their heads around. Again, turn back with me to John chapter 12. John 12. Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, most Jews, when they hear words like Son of Man and glory they are thinking of Daniel chapter 7, which says, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Do you see cross in there anywhere? 
And so when Jesus is telling the Jews about the Son of Man, that He is the Son of Man, the hours come for the Son of Man to be glorified, this is what they're thinking. That's real glory. And so in the ears and the minds of Jesus' Jewish listeners, they're thinking, okay, your time is here to be glorified. Great, bring it on. Bring down the fullness of your kingdom. Kick out the Roman Empire. Restore freedom and prosperity to the nation of Israel. Yes, glorify yourself, Jesus. And we're going to ride your coattails to positions of power and glory. So that's what they're thinking. And they're pumping their fists and they're clapping their hands. But all the fist pumping and all the clapping stops when Jesus continues in verse 23 of John 12. He says, Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And you could just hear the air going out of the balloon when he says that. There's that death talk again from Jesus. He's talking about glory. Now he's talking about dying. What is he talking about? And of course, Jesus gets more explicit in verse 32 in John 12. He says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now again, you and I, when we think lifted up, God is high and lifted up. We're thinking We're thinking this kind of glory right here. But look what it goes on to say, though. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus is going to be lifted up, high and lifted up, all right, hung on a piece of wood on a cross. And to Jesus, that's glory. And that brings us back again to John chapter 17, verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. In other words, what he's praying there is, let the cross come, Father. Let it come. And let us be glorified. We've been trying to find ways to define the glory of God this morning. And John Stott gives us particularly helpful definition when he writes that the glory of God is the outward shining of His inward being. The inward being of God is invisible, and no one has ever seen the inward being of God. But what we have seen, what others have seen, is the outward shining of the inward being of God. So, to glorify God is to put God on display in a way that people can see something about God, to put Him on display in a way that makes God look great to display things about the invisible God in a way that is visible to us. But even that definition is pretty broad because we see visible manifestations of the glory of God in different ways all throughout the Scripture. So, for example, on the one hand, you have something like the Shekinah glory of God seen in the the Old Testament, uh, this beautiful, marvelous brilliance. But on the other hand, we're told Uh, in the Psalms, that the heavens declare the glory of God. There is something about the universe, something about the sun and the moon and the stars and the galaxies that shows you something about God, that puts something about God's glory on display. We also see the glory of God shine through human beings. There are things about a human 
that displays to the world something about God. But the ultimate visible display of the glory of God is Jesus Christ. So Hebrews chapter 1 says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and that Jesus is the exact representation of God's nature, of God's very being. You have in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. To know Christ is to know the glory of God. Now, we can understand God being glorified in the miracles of Jesus. Uh, We can uh, see the glorious compassion of God put on display when Jesus heals people. We can see the glorious provision of God put in the spotlight when He feeds 5,000 people miraculously creating food out of thin air. Uh, We can see the glorious wisdom of God put on display whenever Jesus opens up His mouth to teach. We see the glorious power of God put on display when Jesus walks on the water and when He raises Lazarus from the dead. But in the Gospel of John, the focal point of glory is Jesus' hour. Because the ultimate display of glory is in the cross. John Calvin said, In the cross of Christ, as in a splendid theater, the incomparable goodness of God is set before the whole world. The glory of God shines indeed in all creatures on high and below, but never more brightly than in the cross. Now why? Why is the cross glorious. What is so glorious about that? Where's the glory found in a man hanging with nails in his hands and in his feet and blood pouring out of his body and naked and exposed and humiliated and mocked and ridiculed by his enemies? Where's the glory in that? The glory in that is found in this, that in the cross, two great characteristics of God's inner being are put on visible display for the world. In the cross, we see both the love of God and the justice of God, and these two aspects of God intersect at the cross. At the cross, God solved the greatest of apparent dilemmas. On the one hand, you and I are sinners and rebels before God, and God is a God of justice. Your sin must be punished. My sin must be punished. The wages of sin, the Bible says, is death. And hell was created for you and I as the place where we would pay for our sins forever. On the other hand, God is a God of love and mercy and compassion. And if God condemns everyone to hell, there is no opportunity for Him to glorify Himself through the demonstration of His mercy. On the other hand, if God just cavalierly reverses our sentence to hell and turns a blind eye to our sinful crimes against God, then God Himself would be a sinner because He would allow injustice to reign. This, by the way, is one of the biggest, de- the, one of the biggest deficiencies of Islam. In Islam, the Muslim god Allah, he can be merciful, but he cannot be just. Allah can forgive sins, but he does so in an arbitrary way. 
It's as if Allah is saying, I know you've done all these bad and terrible things, but you know what? You've been serving me pretty good for a while, and so I'm just going to let you into heaven, and we'll just pretend it never happened. We'll just sweep it under the rug. Allah turns a blind eye to sin. Islam does not take sin seriously. Allah does not take sin seriously. Yahweh does. The God of the Bible does. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. A God who is repulsed and offended by all sin, whether it is murder or one little white lie. And because of the extreme holiness of God, the wages for any and all sin is hell forever. There is no turning a blind eye to sin. There is no will just pretend it never happened attitude. God cannot pretend that your offense, that your treasonous, idolatrous sin never happened. And let all sinners know this and let all sinners tremble. Tremble in the fact that Allah does not rule the cosmos, Yahweh does. And you don't have to fear the fake, unholy, wicked God of Islam. And you do not have to fear unholy, wicked people. Do not fear those who can kill the body, Jesus says. Fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Fear that one. God must judge your sin. Otherwise, he is not just. But, and I am so glad there's a but in there. But God also desires to save sinners from judgment. Because God is love. Because while the one true God of the Bible has a holiness and a terrible wrath that far exceeds the God of Islam, the one true God also has a love that far exceeds that of the God of Islam or any other God. No God has shown greater love than the one true God. And so we're told in 1 John chapter 4, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so the cross is the great solution to the great problem. Jesus comes, and on the cross, He takes the sin of the world upon Himself as man's substitute. You know, that Muslim imam that I quoted earlier, he was right about one thing. The cross represents the curse of God on sinners. He's exactly right about that. But the Muslim imam comes to the wrong conclusion. He says the cross represents the curse of God, and that's why Jesus couldn't have died on the cross. But actually, the reverse is true. The cross represents the curse of God, and that's precisely why Jesus had to die on the cross if He's going to save us. That's the whole point. Jesus wasn't dying for His own sin. He had none. And so, on the cross, the sinner's sin is punished and judged in Jesus. 
He bore God's curse on behalf of sinners, which means that if you place your trust in Christ as your substitute, then you'll find your sins have already been judged, which means you are free and you are no longer under the power of the curse. Someone has borne the curse on your behalf. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin on Him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. Because God takes sin so seriously, the wrath of God for your sins has got to go somewhere. It's either going to go on you in hell forever if you refuse Christ, or the gospel announces to us that if you receive Jesus as your substitute, then you are fully forgiven forever by God. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned, he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah! What a Savior! So the greatest display of God's love we could ever see and the greatest display of God's justice we could ever see are both found together at the cross That is what Jesus' hour is all about, and that is why it brings glory to God. And so we see that the cross is the hour for which Jesus had come, and we see that the cross is the means by which He would be glorified, and finally we see that the cross is the grounds by which He gives eternal life. Because of what He did on the cross, Christ not only takes our sins, but He also gives eternal life. Look, going back to John 17, look, look at the first couple of verses there. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, so that the Son may glorify you, since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. Now, what, what is eternal life? Eternal life is not existing forever. That's, that's what some people think eternal life is, just living on and on and on and on. That's not what eternal life is. Some people will exist forever in hell. That's not, that's not eternal life. As we think about what the gospel of John means when it refers to eternal life, we need to think of it in these terms, that it's not the duration of existence that matters as much as the quality of life that you have. And what does that mean? What, what is it that gives you the very best quality of life possible. Lots of money. Some people believe that. Being real popular and liked by others. A lot of people believe that. What is it that gives you the very best quality of life possible? Look at verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's what eternal life is. To know God, to know Christ, is eternal life. It's not about how long you live. It's about who you know. And it's not knowledge in the sense of head knowledge. It's not simply knowing some facts about Jesus, because the devil knows facts about Jesus. The demons believe that God exists. Demons have demonstrated wonderful theology throughout the Gospels. They acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God. That's better than a lot of humans do. It's not just facts about Jesus. To know God in the Scriptures doesn't refer to mere intellectual information as much as it refers to being in right relationship 
with God, in relationship with God. That was the state of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden originally. They were in a state of eternal life. They enjoyed the life of God because they were in right relationship with God. All was well between them and God. All was well between Adam and Eve. All was well between them and the universe. And to sin is to cut yourself off from the very life of God. And and to borrow from Jesus' metaphor that we looked at back in John 15, the sinner is like a branch severed from the vine. And without the life-giving sap from the vine, what happens to the branch? You don't have to be a horticulturist or a botanist to figure this out. It withers, right? It dies. It shrivels up, and it does not produce fruit. And so when Adam and Eve sinned, they, in a sense, became severed from the life-giving vine, and they entered into a state of spiritual death. And this is vividly demonstrated at the end of Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve are banished from the garden, and they are uh, denied access to the tree of life. That removal from the garden uh, speaks, speaks a word not just about geography, but about relationship. But now, God has provided a means for man to enter into the life of God again. And again, it is through a tree. It is through the cross. The cross now becomes the grounds for having a right relationship with God. Without the cross, we would still be in condemnation. Uh, There would still be a relational chasm between us and God and a a separation between us and God because of our sins, but the cross of Christ bridges that chasm. It deals with our sin problem, and it brings us into proper relationship with God. And when we have a real relationship with God, that opens the door to a quality of life that is not available outside of Christ. In Christ, there is to be found a joy and a peace in a satisfaction that nothing else in the world can compete with. Not possessions, not career, not drugs and alcohol, not sinful pleasures. Nothing competes with what is to be found in Christ. And the more you know Jesus, the deeper your experience of those things, of joy, of peace, of satisfaction, the deeper of your experience of those things will be. Jesus, facing the most intense crisis of his life, facing the cross, displays in his prayer here what matters most to him. And what matters most is fulfilling his mission to the cross, glorifying God on the cross, and giving eternal life to all who believe because of the cross. The cross was the central focus of Jesus' life. I wonder if it's the central focus of your life this morning. If you're here today and you are a believer, do you have a cross-centered life? It's possible to be a believer and forget about some of these basic principles, some of the foundational principles of our spiritual life and existence. Do you have a cross-centered life? Are you clinging to the reality of the cross when you're overwhelmed with guilt for your sins? Some of you have very tender consciences very easy for you to be overwhelmed and kind of wallowing in that that, that pit of darkness and guilt because of, of past sins, and you're not clinging to the cross. 
You need to cling to the cross. You need to rest in the work that Christ did on the cross. You need to remember that if you're in Christ, all of your sins have been nailed there and you are no longer condemned. Your your, your sentence of, of condemnation has been nailed to the cross, so leave it there and don't go back. Do you remind yourself of the cross when you struggle with doubt? as to whether God really loves you. There is no greater display of God's amazing love for you than the offering up of His own Son to save you. Goodness gracious, what more can He do to prove His love than that? Embrace that. Receive that. Enjoy that. Be secure in that love. You may doubt that others love you, and no one loves you perfectly, but God does. And it is unfailing, and it is never-ending, it is a steadfast love, and it's so unconditional. Do you bask in the forgiveness you found at the cross so much that as you realize how much God has forgiven you, you become now empowered to forgive others who have sinned against you? Do you know one of the reasons why sometimes we struggle so much with bitterness and unforgiveness and we just can't let go of, the, uh, of things maybe that happened between us and somebody else in the past, and, and, and there's these grudges and all these sorts of things. One of the main reasons why is because we haven't fully appreciated what God in Christ did for us. That's one of the keys to unforgiveness if you're struggling with it. If you're struggling with unforgiving, uh, not forgiving somebody, the, the solution is not, mm, I've got to try really hard to forgive this person today. That's not the solution. The solution is to go back to the cross. And what saved you? And whatever that person did to you doesn't compare to the offense that you did for God. And the incredible measure of His forgiveness that has been extended to you far exceeds the measure of forgiveness you need to extend to anyone else because your offense towards Him is more heinous than anyone's offense against you. If you are a believer, are you consumed by a passion to preach the cross to others, knowing that without it they will not enjoy the eternal life that you have? My challenge for you, believers, is to consider how to live your life in light of the cross. Think and pray and meditate deeply today and this week on how the cross impacts or should impact how you do life and marriage, and parenting, and relationships in the church, and how you face the future, and everything else that you are going through. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, I want to challenge you to consider the cross this morning. Are you struggling with guilt? Are you struggling with shame over things you've done? Maybe you feel dirty. Maybe you feel unclean because of your past, because of deeds and thoughts that if anyone knew them, you would be ashamed if we just projected them all up on the video screen, you would just want to shrivel up and die if people knew about those things? What's the answer? The cross is the answer for you. The cross is the answer. I urge you to come to the cross to place your trust in what Jesus did for you in that great momentous hour. Receive Him as your perfect substitute And enjoy an eternal life that is not just about existing, but it is about real living. And that can start right now, and it will go on forever.
And if you are a believer or an unbeliever, and you want to talk more about the implications of the cross on your life, I'd be very excited to talk with you about those things. The cross and the gospel, it's not just for unbelievers, but it's for every single one of us. So let's continue to receive it, embrace it, enjoy it, trust in it, and glorify God because of it. Let's pray.